All right, we're uh, ready to begin uh, chapter 13, which is, um, as Fred had said in his reminder of the class, uh, we're starting right away. This is, uh, this chapter is, uh, uh, well, they're all important, but this is significant because in Acts 1-8, the instructions of Christ were uh, spread the word first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. This begins that final phase. And it is uh, going to be the Apostle Paul. In this chapter, he will be called Paul from here on out, no longer Saul. I remind you, his Hebrew name was Saulus or Saulus. Saul, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is his Latin name. Uh, and it's, it's not that he had two names and they changed his name. That's not the right way to think about it. His name was Saulus Paulus, and he cha- uh, they began to refer to him more and more as Paul because he's in Gentile territory. And so it would be more shrewd, if you want to put it that way, to use that name than than Saul. You'll see that coming up in in verse um, 9. But the the first couple of verses, um, I want to spend some time on this. Now, there were in the church in Antioch. Now, uh, remember, Antioch is uh, in what today would be called Syria. Then it was the Roman province of Syria. Uh, about 110 miles from Jerusalem, a little more maybe. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was largely a Gentile uh, city. Uh, There are Jews there, but I mean, the majority are not Jews. So as we read last week, this was the uh, territory area where they were first called Christians. And it states there that prophets and teachers in the church now, I insert the, the, uh, the Greek language doesn't have um, you know, periods and exclamation points and colons. They don't have punctuation. So we often insert it, editors insert it. So what I did in my Bible is after the phrase prophets and teachers, I put a colon. Because now Luke chooses to itemize five of them. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, five men. I want to say something about each one of those five men in a moment. But just look at how they are described, prophets and teachers. These are the leaders, uh, not necessarily the governing leaders, but these are the leaders of the church at Antioch, this burgeoning church that is making almost as much as an impact as Jerusalem church, the mother church is. Prophets. Um, that's a broad term, and sometimes when you hear prophet, you immediately think of prophecy, they're telling the future. That's not necessarily the normal way it was used in the first century. Prophet is generally understood as declaring, proclaiming the truth of God revealed. So it's, it's, it's proclaiming revealed truth, and teachers, that's didaskale in Greek, teaching of sound doctrine. That's how those terms, two terms fit together. Now that should not surprise you because in a previous chapter we had read that Barnabas, as the church is in, in Antioch is exploding with growth, Barnabas says, I'm going to go get Saul. So he goes up to Tarsus, gets him, and it tells us, we read that last week, for a year Saul and Barnabas taught the leaders of the church in Antioch. And I speculate a little bit on what they've been teaching, why, why was that important. 
So here you see, and this is why, to me, man, this is really an extraordinary point. Don't miss this. That the primary responsibility of leaders is to communicate, I mean leaders in the church, is to communicate the truth of God. The truth of God revealed, and then how it is systematized into doctrine. And I honestly, I find that extraordinary. And it's one of those things, you read that real quickly. You shouldn't. You should think about that for a minute. The leaders of the church in Antioch, this large church, this growing church, this impactful church, third largest in the third largest city in the Roman Empire, what are the leaders doing? Holding coffee hours? Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, but you know, no. Are they um, having picnics out in the lawn? No, and they may have. But the primary thing they're doing is proclaiming the revealed truth of God, and they're teaching them doctrine. And that is just every generation should do that. Every generation, I don't care what the church is, where it is, whatever its location is, all those other things are just good. There's nothing wrong with coffee and and donuts and all the wonderful things that are a part of fellowship. But if you're not doing this, you're not preparing leaders And so he identifies five of them. You already know Barnabas. Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger meant the Saharan area of Africa. Uh, Simon, or Simeon, would be a black man. He'd be an African. Lucius Cyrene is northern Africa, about roughly where modern-day Libya is, which is just a little bit to the west of Egypt. And this guy is extraordinary. Manan a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is another name for Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, and he ruled Galilee. He would rule Galilee until, uh, oh, about 39 B.C., then he died. So this man, who had served in his court, has become a Christian and a leader, and he's teaching doctrine. And he had been in the court of one of the most powerful men in the Eastern Mediterranean, the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. And then finally, and Saul. So what observations could you make about these leaders? This is an ethnically diverse group, isn't it? You have a black man from Niger. You have another possibly black man from uh, Cyrene, which is in the northern part of Africa, and you have a man who had served in the court of Herod Antipas, who had ministered and ruled the region of Galilee. And you might remember this, although uh, unless you studied it recently, you may have forgotten it, but uh, Jesus had six trials. One of his trials was before Herod Antipas. I don't know if you remember that. So I'm, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's a little bit like some of the things Paul shares in the book of Philippians. The gospel of Jesus Christ has penetrated in to a very powerful court. And one of the members of that court has trusted Christ probably in the mid to late 30s, and now we're into the 40s, about almost 48, uh, 47, BC, uh, 47 AD, excuse me. And this guy is now leader in the church at Antioch. So it's just an observation to make, and I think it's quite a quite a significant one to make. Yeah, you know, Jim. Do we have any evidence that the gospel had penetrated into North Africa by this time? Absolutely, absolutely. Quite a bit of extra biblical evidence. Absolutely. 
and it is it is 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 moving south. No, absolutely. Um, oh, what's it? Thomas Oden. Thomas Oden is a church historian, very very prestigious historian. He has launched a. It's now almost two decades old. He has launched a detailed study project of the African church at this time. And he published uh, five articles in a journal I subscribe to over a period of time. And I'm, I'm to be blunt, most of the names he mentions, I've never heard of them before. But that's because that's not been an area that's typically been studied. And Odin has done a tremendous study of this and has demonstrated quite unequivocally that, as with every, you would expect this, that the gospel penetrated the whole way across North Africa, quite significant. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it is to an extent. It's part of the Jewish diaspora, but it's, uh, and this again is, you, we have to rely on some extra biblical evidence for this, and it doesn't always have the same authority as Scripture does, but a number of the disciples, or you know, of the 12, they went in all directions. And one of the key ones went across the north. At James, uh, the, the James that's the brother of Jesus, uh, is supposed to eventually go on across Africa and up into Spain. I mean, some of that's very hard to prove, but they're, they're, they're on the move. And it's, that's always, for me, frustrating as a historian, because why didn't Luke tell us where every one of these guys went in detail? Well, then the Gospel of Acts would have been 414 chapters. And, you know, that gets, so he's just choosing, under the Spirit's inspiration, choosing to focus on two people primarily, Peter and Paul. Now, others, Philip, we mentioned him. But yes, Jim, as a matter of fact, there's quite a bit of evidence, Dr. Odin's done a lot of that, that the African church, North African church, was growing faster than almost any other area at that point. Because not... Too long, one of, a man by the name of Augustine, who would have been a black man, you know, we don't usually understand it that way, but uh, will become one of the greatest leaders, theologians, of the church. He lives his most productive years in the early 400s. And uh, his mother, Monica, had become a Christian decades earlier and prayed for her son every day until he came to Christ. Well, I'm telling you more than you probably want to know, but does that answer your question? No. It is. It's a, yeah, it's, it's quite a fascinating area. And as I said before, they're, they're really starting to give a lot of study of that right now. Yeah, he is from, uh, he's, he's mentioned uh, in his uh, confessions and some of his, he mentions he is of a tribe, which, you know, that's kind of how people organize. And that is, it's, it's hard to identify what that is, but many historians argue that he is probably, be- now not necessarily a dark sub-Saharan African, like from Zimbabwe or something like that today, but a dark-skinned, um, and, and you know, in many ways, Jesus was probably more dark-skinned than he was light-skinned, simply because he was a Jew from the Eastern Mediterranean. But that, I mean, it doesn't matter, but yeah, and that, so I should have clarified that in terms of a, a dark skin, not necessarily the black of sub-Saharan Africa. But All right, well, good. I just wanted to draw attention to that. Verse 2, now notice this. In the midst of the congregation in Antioch, church, in the midst of the congregation, worshiping, praying, fasting, the Holy Spirit does something significant. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, in other words, after the worship time is over, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's, I mean, it's very poignant and quick and boom, it's over. But in the midst of, of a worshiping, praying, fasting church, the Holy Spirit specifically directs two people that he wants to send out. Now, would you observe something? The Holy Spirit just cut, cut the top of the leadership head off at Antioch. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, two of the five key, key leaders are gone. And so when you think about that for a moment, you, you see, well, wow, you're leaving a big vacuum there. True. But also think about it this way. Who were the two most qualified people to take the gospel to the Gentile Greco-Roman world? Saul. Much of his life was training in a Greco-Roman university, the University of Tarsus, and the rest of his life, as a young adult, was studying under Gamaliel I, the great rabbi. So he's prepared. He's better prepared. And then he spent those roughly 10 years, as we talked about last week in Tarsus, thinking through the truth now that Jesus is his Messiah. What difference does that make? So you could not have chosen a better person but just think of the vacuum that would have left in the Antioch church. It's a big hole that would need to be filled. Um, the, I thought it was interesting. While they were ministering to the Lord, can you explain, rather than saying on behalf of or for or whatever, that they, it sounds like they're ministering to the Lord? Can they ask? Well, um, the ESV, the way translation I'm using, does not translate it that way, but New American Standard does. Um, isn't it appropriate for you to think of your worship and your singing as praying to the Lord? That's ministering to Him. Not that so ministering. The, the, the word there, minister, can be translated worship too. I mean. So, I mean, worship is to the Lord, ministering to the Lord. In the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew um, ritual, the, some of the offerings are called sweet savor offerings to the Lord. They're pleasing in his nostrils. That's how, the, I mean, that's, God doesn't have nostrils. That's a figure of speech. But it's pleasing. So ministering and worshiping and um, praying and it's all it's to the lord it is pleasing to him and it's that in that context this is a magnificent moment in which god intervenes um, to accomplish a greater purpose to start the last part of acts 1 8 verse 5 or excuse me verse 4 so being sent out by the holy spirit now here's where you look at your map, if you want to look at your map, they go from Antioch. Antioch is not a port city, so they go down to Seleucia, which is right on the coast. <clears throat> Today, very, very close to a major naval boat base that Russia has set up. I don't know why I told you that, but I just thought I'd share that with you. It's the most remarkable things that nobody seemed to notice. Vladimir Putin has accomplished something 
that every major Roman Tsar dreamed of. Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, just long for a penetration of the Middle East. Vladimir Putin has achieved that. He's achieved something the Soviet Union never achieved. He's got two naval, uh, naval base and two air bases in Syria. Did you, I mean, did you catch that? Most people, it's just, it's been amazing what has happened, and nobody seems to be paying any attention to it. Um, and uh, what that's going to mean in the future, I don't know. But I'll just say something that the prophetic material in Daniel and Revelation says the greatest enemy of Israel at the end of time will be the power to the north. And it's just fascinating to see what Russia has been able to succeed. So I shouldn't have mentioned it has nothing to do with Acts 13. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now you should know that. You should just think about that for a moment. Cyprus is an island. It was actually a Senate province in the Roman Empire at this time. It was about oh, 140 miles long and about 60 miles wide. Of the two, Barnabas and Saul, which one was from Cyprus? Barnabas was. Now, that's, that's not a hard question because you think, well, Saul's from Tarsus. It can't be Saul, so it's going to be Barnabas. And I figured you'd all know that, but Fred was the spokesman for the group and was correct. Tim, I just noticed that you have a red line the trip on the map. I have a bread line? Yeah. A, a, oh. Oh, good. You don't have a bread line? No. Well, the first stop is Cyprus. Yes. Okay, good. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, Cyprus, it's a, a significant place to start uh, because Cyprus is strategic because it's an island in the eastern Mediterranean and so on. And it's a nice stop-off point to their main goal, which was the Roman province of Asia, what you and I would call today Turkey. And so what happens there? Well, it's, it's interesting. When they arrived at Salamis, and if you look on your map, that's a, that's a city, a community on the eastern end of the island, kind of northeastern end of the island, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This sets a pattern that you will see rather consistently through the three missionary journeys of Paul. When he goes into a community, assuming that there are Jews there, he will first go to the synagogues. Why? Now, obviously, you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. It is the pattern that you will see consistently. He, he goes into the community, he will first go to the Jewish synagogue. Why would he do that? Probably out of respect and to see what they were teaching. They'd be teaching from the Old Testament. Definitely they would be teaching and reading from the Old Testament. That's part of the... Reason. So there, would they be then going to announce and, and proclaim the birth of Jesus Christ? Yeah. I mean, they, if they're Jews in the Senate, these are diaspora Jews. They spread out from the from the land of Israel. Um, what is, at, and here we are in the first century, what's their expectation? What's their anticipation? What are they looking for? Who are they looking for? The for the Messiah. And so, I mean, can you think of more, a group more prone to listen 
then somebody that recognizes the importance of the Old Testament, knows the prophetic passage of the Old Testament, but they're still waiting for the Messiah. And so you walk in and you start, we're going to see one a little later on uh, up in the city of Antioch where we're going to have recorded one of Saul's, uh, Paul's messages. But it's, it's, it's a strategic move on his part. Now, albeit he is directed by the Holy Spirit, but go to my people first, God says. They're prepared for this. Now, tragically, as we saw in Jerusalem, most of them are not going to accept it. Some will. So it's just a strategic, even tactical note, more, more particularly, of, of how Paul does this. And it tells us in the text in verse 5, it's one of Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, Luke, the writer, does this quite a bit. It's called a walk-on. He just mentioned somebody, and they had John to assist them. Who's that? John, the disciple? No. John, the brother of, Zeb, uh, of James, Zebedee, who had been killed? No. This is John Mark. This is John Mark. In the previous chapter, when Peter had been thrown into prison as a result of Herod, Antipas's, uh, or Herod Agrippa's attempts to earn favor, um, they were in the home of Mary, the mother of John, the mother of John Mark. This is Mark or John Mark. He'll write the gospel of Mark. But Luke introduces us to him, then he drops him for a while because he's going to desert Saul and Barnabas. He's going to leave them. And we'll find out later in the book of Acts that causes a division. That causes a disagreement between Barnabas and Saul. And they'll go their separate ways for a period. Now, I'm just, if, you're, if, you, if I lost you there, don't worry about it. But it's, this, is a, this is a literary device that Luke does very frequently. We saw it way back in Acts 7. Stephen is, is being executed, and it's all done. The horrific details are over. And then as Luke adds, oh, and by the way, a young Jewish leader named Saul was holding all their coats. Okay, thanks for that information. It's the first time you ever read it. Okay. But then a couple chapters later, you find out more about this guy, Saul. A devout Jew, a devout Pharisee, trying to eradicate this. So he's doing here with this guy. Verse 6, when he had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, now that you, if you look on the map, that's on the other side of the island, about 130 miles away. It's about 130 miles that separates Salamis from Paphos. They came upon a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, the word magician is translating a Greek word, magos, M-A-G-O-S. So it's just very similar, magician. So don't, don't think of a magician who does card tricks or pulls rabbits out of the hat. That's not really what that mean, word means. This is a guy who's doing occult things, and he's a Jew. And what's his name? Bar Jesus. Do you happen to know what that means? Son of Jesus. Bar is a Hebrew word which means son of. So that's, that's extraordinary. That I, we don't know what he means by that. Because Jesus 
Asus was not an unusual name. I mean, it really wasn't. But because it applies to the Savior of the world, that is, you know, potentially. So Luke identifies him a magician, a doer of the occult, a Jewish man who's a false prophet who has the name Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Paphos was the administrative center of Cyprus. It's a political center. So what I want you to see here, this is quite, this is really interesting how, how Luke sets this up for us. The gospel is being presented here in Paphos on the western end of Cyprus, the political center of the island. And you have two people. You have a Jew and you have a Gentile. The Gentile is a Roman official. He's a proconsul, a very powerful Roman official. Uh, that's kind of a, a political title, the administrative authority. And you have a Jew who is a practicer of the occult. He's a false prophet. And he's a magician or a, um, a prophet with the name Bar-Jesus. What's the response going to be of these two? What Luke is doing is he's setting this up for us to understand that this is where the gospel is going to have its greatest success. And this guy, his name is Sergius Polis, this guy is going to come to faith. This guy isn't. So you have what, what is, is, is almost always the pattern here in the way in which the gospel is presented in Paul's missionary journeys. You have two significant individuals or two significant groups, and the question is how they're going to respond. Now you notice something, I hope you noticed that in verse 7, that this false prophet, this Jewish false prophet, is with the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Sergius Paulus is depending on this guy. He's using this guy. Is this guy an advisor of his? We don't know exactly, but he's with him. And so Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He, we, are, we have to draw some inferences here. We, we really do. Sergius Paulus must have heard that Saul and Barnabas were in Paphos. Maybe he had, they had preached or taught in the local synagogue. We do, we're just not sure. We don't have any details. Luke doesn't tell us. But in some way, Sergius Paulus hears about this. He says, I want to hear what you guys have to say. What a tremendous... It would be like President Trump giving me a call on the phone and hearing that, I mean, you know, I don't want to get anything about him, just using that as an example. And he said, I hear you are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you come to my office? I'm going to hear about it. Can you give a greater invitation? I mean, it's like, duh. Think he'll come? Oh, uh, yeah, we'll be there in five minutes. So, I mean, it's a kind of, it's an extraordinary opportunity. But you got to remember, this is also setting, it up, set us, setting us up for genuine example of spiritual warfare. 
Because if Bar-Jesus, this Jewish false prophet who's a magician, a dabbler in the occult, where's he get his power? It's satanic, evil power. He is going to do everything he possibly can to prevent Sergius Paulus from hearing and responding to the gospel message. You with me? I mean, that's how Luke is setting this up for us to understand as he tells this very important story of what happened in this important city. Next verse, verse 8. What's the first word? But. Elimas, the magician. Same word. For that is the meaning of his name. And Elimas means freedom. So, the, this free man, free from what? Free from any authority under God, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, this is spiritual warfare. It really is. Here's Elimas, the free one who really represents the bondage to Satan, trying to prevent this powerful Roman political official, Sergius Paulus, from hearing the truth. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what he did. Luke doesn't tell us how he tried to prevent this from happening. But you have this opposition. This Jewish occult false prophet, whose name's Bar-Jesus, with this very powerful Roman political official. And he is trying to prevent him from hearing the truth. So Elimus and Bar-Jesus are the same? They are the same individuals. That's just, they are the same individuals. And this is all we know about him. I'm frustrated, but I wish we had a little biography of him. Don't you? I mean, it's just, you have to just, you get read between the lines, try to figure some of this stuff out. But this is a guy who, without question, is empowered by and enabled by the evil one. He is a false prophet who is a Jewish false prophet trying to prevent someone from hearing the truth about the gospel. Verse 9, another strong contrast, but Saul, now a significant change, who is also called Paul. And from here on out, the text is going to refer to him as Paul. No longer referring to him as Saul his Jewish name. Now he's going to be using his Latin name. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently. That's how the ESV translates that, looked intently. Uh, you know, another, if you want to try to find another word, to cat, he gazed at him, you know, piercing, penetrating eyes, and said, you son of the devil, That's not a very nice thing to say to somebody. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, who was the master of deceit and villainy. Satan, go back to Genesis 3, how he approached Eve 
Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now that's that's a saying. Crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What does he mean by that? Why why did he speak to him in that way? Son of the devil, enemy of all right, not that. But you're making things crooked that from God's perspective are straight. The straight paths of the Lord. What does crooked mean? It's the opposite of straight. <laughs> it's the opposite of straight. And think of it, think of how he puts it, the straight paths of the Lord. There's one path to God. It's through Jesus. And bar Jesus, Elimas, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, you're trying to redirect Sergius Paulus' attention away from Jesus Christ. And you're making crooked what is a straight path to him. Okay. Well, maybe your question will dovetail with his, but. So, but, but he's, he's a Jew. He's not, he's not Christian. So. Um, That's right. But he's he's a magician. He's an, a practicer of the occult, which is what that means. But he's not doing anything that's Christian. I'm I, I'm not sure I understand he's your not, question. He's not perverting the gospel. He's not even agreeing with the gospel. But what is he trying to do in, as the text said in the previous verse, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith? Sure. I mean that's because he has know, attention. Because what? It's, it's, it's a selfish thing on his part, right? Because he has their attention, he has their ear. So he, he doesn't want that to come. But being Jewish, he, he knows the Old Testament, he knows the prophecies, and he's, he's, he's bending the prophecies, he's telling him false things about the prophecies and stuff. And so they don't want him to hear the gospel. It must. It must have been something. We don't. That's what Luke just doesn't explain all this. You know, he may have uh, stated some of the prophetic claims of the Old Testament about the Messiah and what he's going to look like. Paul isn't representing any of that. Don't believe any of that. He's being deceitful. He's lying to you. And so Paul has said all these paths that are the truths of the Old Testament that lead to Jesus. You're perverting and 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 twisting and making them crooked clear clear straight paths that lead to the conclusion this all is pointing to jesus christ sergius paulus what are you going to do with that he's trying to distort and being very deceitful um twisting and turning the attention because i'm i'm convinced that saul would have been paul now would have been using old testament teachings to build his proof as to who jesus is and sign or bar Jesus is saying, no, don't believe that. That's not true. I'm the authority. I know what it. He's not saying it correctly. He's not declaring it properly. You son of the devil. You deceitful one. I mean, it's just it's a confrontation that is deeper than just about some kind of political power struggle. This is a struggle for the heart and soul of this man, Sergius Paulus. Yeah. Well, 
And isn't this what Satan said, really? I mean, he was quoting scripture. But sure, sure, sure. I think it's prophetic past from the Old Testament. Right, right, exactly. I mean, this is what, um, you know, Fred was telling me that uh, he he read a story or, or heard uh, in Wisconsin. Was it Wisconsin? Yeah. Green Bear, the ELS church up there is saying that the Holy Spirit created God, and now they're going to change their doctrinal statement. That's twisting and distorting basic biblical truth. So um, it's, it, it's an attempt to twist and distort and make crooked, very clear teachings about God, what he's doing, what his purposes are. And this Jewish false prophet's trying to do this. Because listen, Sergius Paulus was much closer to Bar-Jesus than he was to Saul and Barnabas. Some kind of a relationship had been a part, been, been, been an aspect of, of them for a period of time. I mean, when it says he's with Sergius Paulus, presumably some kind of an advisor, some kind of a counselor to this important Roman official. Saul and Barnabas are representing something he's never heard before. I've never heard this. Paul has just now publicly rebuked him. And something else is going to happen. Verse 11, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately missed. It's a very difficult, the only time it's used in the New Testament. ESV translates it missed. It is a word, oclus is the name of the word, loss of light. He can't see. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Look at verse 12. What happened? Then... You ought to circle the word then. Then the proconsul believed. He saw messianic power being used. And that's what caused him to believe when he saw what had occurred, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Saul, astonished at the teaching. Saw the miracle, astonished at the teaching. He becomes a Christian. 1 John says in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Here you see a perfect example of it. That's right. That's right. Well, many expositors have noted the, the similarity between what had happened to Paul uh, approximately 13 years earlier and what had happened to this Bar-Jesus. What Luke does not tell us is when he got his sight back if he had put his faith in Christ. I'm assuming because Luke doesn't tell us he did, I'm assuming he did not do that, but we don't know that for sure. This is an extraordinary, this is the beginning of the missionary journeys. Uh, you know, there are three of them. This is the beginning, and it's a strategic, political, official, Sergius Paulus, but it's illustrating again something you're going to see again and again and again in Paul's ministry. Genuine spiritual warfare. Because the gospel is penetrating an area 
where there has never been any knowledge of who the true God really is. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's just a, it's a tremendous miracle, but it's filled with a lot of um, very important lessons, even for us today. Again, I repeat, and that's in those first four verses of First John four. Spiritual warfare is something we should not be surprised at, even in year 2018. And always remember, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. All right. Everybody with me? Yeah, John. Uh, going back to <clears throat> when, when they got to Cyprus and started preaching in the synagogues, um, those were the Jews in the synagogues there, were, were they Jews had fled from Jerusalem at all, or had they been here for quite a while on Cyprus? Well, the first, the, uh, they've been there for a, a, a bit. Um, the, the first, uh, I think I'm right on this, I remember uh, studying this. Uh, the first Jews to show up in Cyprus were about 150 B.C., and Barnabas, who was from Cyprus, was a, a descendant of those. These are diaspora Jews. You remember what diaspora? These are diaspora Jews who had fled Israel for a lot of reasons because there were a series of captivities, the oppressive rule of, of Greece, the oppressive rule of Rome, as well as Persia and all that. Uh, a, a lot of them for a lot of reasons or lots of things that continue to cause them to move out. But on the island of Cyprus, they've been there in roughly about 200 years. Yeah, around 200 so years. It didn't seem to be, it doesn't speak about any opposition from the Jewish leaders. Not here, no. Not here. Now, particularly the, where they, they spent time there was in uh, the, the uh, Salamis, that first city where they landed up in the northeastern corner. Uh, here in, in, in Paphos, it's more of the concentration on the, this Roman proconsul, this Roman official. But you're right, there's, there's not the significant opposition to the Jews as you're going to see in the next section. There you're going to see much greater opposition from the Jewish people, uh, uh, Jewish uh, leaders. Okay? Verse 13. Now, again, if, if you want to you know, follow your map, it, it, Luke is very specific here. He, he's telling us exactly where they're going, from one city to the next city to the next city and so on. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and came to Perga and Pamphylia. If you look at your map, Perga is just a little, kind of a little bit farther to the west and north. It's a port in what you and I today would call Turkey, what then was called the large Roman province of Asia, which was subdivided into many other parts. So now they're in Anatolia, as it was called, or, or uh, per, um, uh, Turkey, as we call it today. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Ah, the guy we had introduced to in Cyprus, who had been with Paul and Barnabas, now leaves them. Luke does not tell us why he left them. We learn that later on, it was over a dispute. And Mark said, John Mark said, I'm going home. I don't want to do this anymore. And basically that's it, because then later... And they want to go on another missionary journey. Barnabas says, I'm going to take John Mark. He says, no, you're not. 
I don't want John Mark with us. And so the consequence of that is Paul and Barnabas split over the issue of John Mark. John Mark is, is a relative of Barnabas's. And so it's, all Luke's doing, he just tells us he left. We'll find out later the consequences of that. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Again, if you look on the map, you can see that they're now penetrating into the mountains of this area that becomes known as Galatia, a much larger area. And this is important. You'll notice again, this is Antioch. This is, there are many, many, many cities named Antioch. This was the civic and military center of this province. This is an important city. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. That's their normal pattern. And sat down. Now that is not unusual. Synagogues, the synagogues in the ancient world, unlike synagogues you see today, but in the ancient world, they were kind of like an ark. And then they, the Torah was in the center and they would read and so on. So they, you come in this door and you're somewhere along here. There are no backs on the chairs or anything like that. Uh, Saul and uh, Paul and Barnabas, they sit down. That's really interesting because it says they sat down after reading from the law and the prophets. That was the typical, that's a typical statement of what they did in the synagogue. Because remember, the synagogues were teaching centers. You didn't do sacrifices there. There's no priest, high priest there, anything like that. You went to the synagogue to hear the Old Testament read, to hear the Word of God read. Nobody owned books. Nobody, you know, they were too expensive. So you would go there to hear. And it always says the law and the prophets. And that is kind of an all-encompassing phrase. They, re- they, had a, they had a strict calendar that they followed, on this Sabbath, you read this. On this Sabbath, they have a strict calendar. So they're reading. So they're done reading. The rulers of the synagogue, these are the elders, more than likely the oldest members, although not always, sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now what's going on here? Well, it's a synagogue. It's presumably one of a fair amount of size. And Paul and Barnabas uh, walk in, sit down. They're guests. They're foreigners. Nobody recognizes them. But they had probably heard some of the things they have been doing. And he says to them, do you have a word of encouragement? Do you have a little homily for us? Now, listen. Almost always in a synagogue, there's the reading of Scripture, the Old Testament, fairly extensive reading, because people did not have Bibles. They didn't have their own copies. And fairly extensive readings from the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch, readings from some of the prophets, long sections of Isaiah, Jeremiah, for example, and sometimes even some of the readings from the history, rarely did they read the history, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. So after a long reading from the Torah, a long reading from the prophets, do you have any words of encouragement about what we just read? Do you have a little homily on what was just read? Homily, is, that's not a word probably most of you are familiar with. 
but it's it's like a it's like a little not even a sermon it's like a little brief set of comments not like the typical sermon which is oh 50 minutes to, to 75 no most of your about 30 minutes you know after the sermon pastor goes past 30 minutes people start looking at their watch if he has the audacity to go to 40 people get up and leave because they got to go to breakfast at denny's and they can't possibly sit there isn't that cynical it's awful what i just said so i mean it's like incredible invitation to them you just heard the word of the law and the prophets read paul do you have anything to say about this can you share anything words of a little homily on this Good night. Can you imagine an invitation like that for Paul? Sit down, I have a lot to say. Now, he didn't really say that. But we have here the first recorded sermon of Paul. Now, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it today, but I'm going to start. I, I want to encourage you, if, if you want, to break it into three parts. Every sermon has three parts to it. And you get that from the way Paul preaches his sermons, from the way Peter preached. I made all that up. That's not true. But part one is an historical review of the children of Israel. And it goes from verse 16 to verse 25. Why would Paul do that? To review, now listen to me, to review that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. Because then, in verse 26 through 20, 37, he zeroes in on Jesus. So what he's doing, it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. What he, he really is, it's, it's absolutely brilliant how he does it. If I can get these papers I should have asked Joel. Joel was in here. Did he leave? Yeah, he was there. So, I hope it's all right I use another sheet of paper. But he reviews their history. But he's not just giving them a history lesson. He wants to draw their attention to the words of the covenant and the words of the prophecies. He's going to summarize all this. But all of this is pointing. So this is part one of his sermon. Part two is Jesus. And what he's doing here is he's going to say... This all points to Jesus. And the key word, you guys, is to understand, not you guys, I mean these people, is to understand that he fulfilled all this stuff. And what he's going to do, you're going to see it at the end of the part on Jesus. In verse uh, 33 through 35, he's going to quote three Old Testament texts. Three verbatim Old Testament texts and say, see, here's the promise, here's the fulfillment. And here's the resurrection. Jesus. And so it points, and then the last part, which is short, uh, verses 38 through 41, is the application. So if this history prophecies point to Jesus, then they're fulfilled. The applications, you guys have to accept this. You Jews and Pisidian Antioch, you have to follow the logic of this. Here's your history. It all points to Jesus. Jesus did all this, therefore you only have one response that's acceptable. Believe. So we get, a, we, we get an insight here 
and to Paul. Granted, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, you see the you see the brilliance of his mind where he can encapsulate in a very brief period of time the whole point of the Old Testament, the fulfillment in the New, and for you Jews, the only acceptable response is to accept him. You can't ignore this. The evidence is so overwhelming and so compelling. So we're now introduced to how Paul thinks and how Paul presents the gospel to Jews in the synagogue. Okay? Now let's start to dig into it. So that first third, uh, first third of that... 16 through 25, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's telling them what they already know. Absolutely. Right. He's reviewing what they already know. Right. Highlighting right. some key right. things. Highlighting key... But this is not new truth to them. This isn't the first time they've ever heard that. No. For a Gentile who's worshipped Greco-Roman gods all their life, he's not going to do this. He's not going to approach them this way. I want to tell the history of you people. Well, is he going to start with Romulus and Remus? You don't know the story. That's the mythology. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to try to meet them on their terms and talk their language. But here he's speaking to Jews. It's just absolutely brilliant. But I want you to notice something in the first verse here, verse 16. We're kind of in the middle of verse. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. These, are the, these get nicknamed the God-fearers. These are Gentiles who had converted, <clears throat> excuse me, who had converted to Judaism. You, we, we studied a couple of them so far. Do you remember when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch? He was an Ethiopian. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. But he had converted to Judaism. We had read uh, in, in Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius, a Roman military officer, who was called a God-fearer. These, another word that sometimes is in the New Testament, these are proselytes. These are Gentiles who had converted. Now, we don't know the numbers. We don't, he, he doesn't break it down. But in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, the synagogue includes majority Jews, but presumably fairly good number of God-fearers. Listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. That uplifted arm, that's it's a figure of speech, but his power. And that you know from Exodus 7 and on that we studied a year or two ago. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them. That's how the ESV translates it. Isn't that great? He put up with them. He put up with them. What does that mean? Grace abounds. Yeah, grace abounds. Because they didn't trust him. Right? They didn't, they didn't believe that he would take them into the promised land. When Joshua and Caleb and the guys came back with the reports about what Canaan looked like, two of the twelve said, we can do it. The other ten said, no, we can't. And so the crowd believed the ten, not Joshua and Caleb. Well, anyway, you know the story. He put up with them for 40 years. I, I, I love that. He put up with them. 
And after destroying seven nations, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, lists the major seven Canaanite nations. That's apparently what Paul is following. And he gave them the land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Now you got it. Some people, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. They were in, a, they were in Egypt for 400 years. 450 a mistake. No, it's not. 400, 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and 10 years of conquest. That's 450. In the book of Joshua, it's explicit. It took 10 years to conquer uh, Canaan. So I'm saying all that because this isn't a mistake. You just have to think about why Paul's using 450 years. And after about 450 years, after he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, he's reviewing their history. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Who will do all my will. Now, the linchpin. Now, the key to his review. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Did God promise a Savior of Israel to save them from their sins? Yes. It's all over the prophecies. But the Davidic promise summarized in 2 Samuel 7, 16, is one David's son who will be the Savior. And Jesus introduced in the very first verse in the New Testament as the son of David. Now that gets their attention because they have been waiting. They've been waiting for this son of David. That's the Messiah. Paul's just said it's Jesus. Some of them, possibly, some of them in that synagogue room had never heard that before. They maybe never had heard that before. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. That's obviously John the, ba John the Baptist. Verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And that's that's mentioned several times in the New uh, Testament in the Gospel accounts, where, where John says that. Matthew 3, 1 is one place you could find that. So what did you, excuse me, what has Paul just done? Whoa, time to quit here. What has Paul just done? He summarized from 2000 B.C. when God chose Abraham to 33 A.D. All of that in about a short paragraph. But what's the point? This all led to the offspring of David will come a savior. He's here. He's come. 
So I'm going to have to say, if you really want to find out how Paul clinches this, come back next week. Because it, it, what he does in verse 26 through 37, in my view, is one of the most brilliant summaries of connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament together. It's, it really it's one of the most brilliant connections I've ever, uh, I can point to in the, in the New Testament. And it's how he does it. It's how he lays it and how he makes those three Old Testament connections. Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 52-3, and Psalm 16-10, which we'll do next week. All right, did, now are you with me on all this? Did, did, we covered a lot of territory today, both geographical territory. We've gone hundreds and hundreds of miles geographically. Yeah, Paul was brilliant. He was. And he had all that training before yeah. he became Paul. Yes. And, and then he studied... And God does not waste any of that. When somebody is prepared that well, God will not waste it if that person's so... He was. Yeah, he really, he really was. It's really brilliant. All right, I'm going to assume you're all with me. You can't wait till next week. You'll be sitting in the edge of your seat till next Wednesday to find out how Paul made the connections about Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be sitting on my to my seat. Lord, thank you that uh, the Word of God is powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. Thank you for the clarity of Luke's historical account of the beginning of this penetration of the gospel into Gentile territory, province of the Roman Empire. We saw a Roman military political officer except Christ in the, on the island of Cyprus. We saw how that spiritual warfare as he's opposed, Paul's opposed, by this occult magician, Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the truth and power of the gospel. It overcomes all evil. It pierces and penetrates people's hearts to bring them to faith in Christ. And this uh, message that Paul delivered there in Pisidian Antioch, we're just in the middle of it. We see the brilliance of Paul, the clarity of his argument, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, but nevertheless showing his training and his discipline. He presents an irrevocable case for the fact that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And now you Jews in this synagogue, you have only one choice. Put your faith in him. Trust him. So we'll be interested next week in seeing how this all works out. Be with these men. Thank you for their willingness to come and be a part of a class like this. I trust that this is helping them to grow in their faith, in their trust in you, and their dependence on you. So as we are dismissed here and go our separate ways, Lord, may we represent you well. And we be your ambassadors in the Son's name we pray. Amen.